Our scripture reading today is from Luke 15, 1 through 10. Luke 15, 1 through 10. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, TK, for reading that passage for us. Um, I'll just close the loop on the announcement that Melanie Rayner gave about the songwriting uh, night. She said she's not sure what they do when they get together. They rock. That's what they do. <laughs> Everybody knows that. Uh, okay, so on the back wall of our sanctuary there, there's a painting uh, by... Henry Osawa Tanner of Jesus and Nicodemus. And look at it on the way out if you haven't um, already. The, Henry Osawa Tanner is one of my favorite uh, painters, particularly of biblical scenes. And when people paint pictures of the incarnate Christ, so Jesus in bodily form, which you know thousands and thousands of people saw, um, Capturing his divinity, there, there are things artists do to try to capture the divinity of Christ when they're painting the humanity of Christ. And one of those things that's kind of a, you know, you, one of the most common ways is maybe a halo, right? You see a halo around him. What I love about the painting in the back of the room there <clears throat> is that the way Tanner chose to depict the divinity of Jesus is, his, is there's a, a glow that emanates from his chest, and uh, it's, it's a, it's, it moves me. I think about Nicodemus a lot. I think about uh, this character in Scripture who, he comes up a couple times in John's Gospel. We learn about him in John chapter 3. That's where we first meet Nicodemus. And, and what we learn about him is we learn that he's a Pharisee, that he's part of the Sanhedrin. John calls him a ruler of the Jews. And... Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night 
because he wants to have a secret meeting with him. He wants to have a conversation with Jesus. He doesn't want his colleagues to know that it's happening. And the reason that he wants to do this is because like his colleagues in the Sanhedrin, the other Pharisees, they've seen Jesus and, and they've seen, they, they know about miracles that he's performed and they, and they have seen uh, the way that people have been responding to him and they've listened to his teachings and, and he's beginning to form some conclusions about Jesus or to suspect some things about Jesus that has him a little uncomfortable with himself. And so he sits down and, and he says this. In their secret meeting, Nicodemus says to Jesus this, quote, he says, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. And they have this conversation where, where Jesus goes on to talk about how what, Nicodem, what Nicodemus needs and what all of us need is to be born a second time. And that confuses Nicodemus, rightfully. It's a strange thing to say, right, that you need to be born a second time. Nicodemus takes it really literally, and he, he just kind of asks, like, you mean, like, re-enter the womb? And that's when Jesus tells him that whoever believes in the Son of Man will have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life because God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That verse, John three sixteen, perhaps the most famous Bible verse that there is, was a, by way of a conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, this Pharisee who's trying to sort out who Christ is. So I want you to keep him in mind as we unpack this passage of scripture that TK just read for us because I bring Nicodemus up as a reminder to us all that not all of the Pharisees responded to Jesus in the same way. In other words, they're not cartoon villains. They're people who are trying to make their way through the world according to a certain set of rules that they thought were pleasing to a God that they barely knew. In today's text, we read about more Pharisees. We don't know if Nicodemus is among this group or not. He might have been. But Luke tells us that in this moment, the Pharisees are upset with Jesus. They're upset with him. Why are they upset? Verse 2 tells us, the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. That's what they're mad about. That simple little statement, this man receives sinners and he eats with them, is packed with presumption. Ah, just layers of presumption, and I want to unpack just a little bit of it because they're making incredible presumptions about sinners, and they're also making presumptions about themselves. What are the presumptions they're making about sinners? Let me give you just three. There are others, but here's three. Presumption number one, there are people in this world we should not receive. That's presumption number one. 
There are people we just should not receive. Jesus is receiving them and it's a problem. Presumption number two, the reason we shouldn't receive them is because they have made a mess of their lives. The people we should not receive are those who have just made a mess of their lives. And the third presumption is that their failures, them making a mess of their lives, somehow puts them beneath us. That's pretty loaded. They're mad at Jesus because he, quote, receives sinners and eats with them. There are people we should not receive. We should not receive them because they've made a mess of their lives. And in that failure of theirs, it puts them somehow lower than us. They're beneath us. And then they have presumptions about themselves. Number one, they are not sinners. Not in the same way, anyway because they have not made messes of their own lives. Presumption number two, and this is a hard one, is the presumption that they, they deserve to be received by Jesus based on their merit, which is another way of saying it is their lack of a need for him that they consider to be a virtue before God. The lack of a need for God is a virtue before God. And then the third presumption that they're making here is that for them, the act of dining with another person is a system. It's a system that you use to include and it's a system that you use to exclude. There are people we should not receive. The reason we should not receive them is because of the mess they've made of their lives, which puts them somehow beneath us. But we're not sinners, not in the same way. We actually deserve to be received by Jesus. And the reason we deserve to be received by Jesus is because we don't need anything from him. And so if anybody is going to sit at a table with him, it should be we who are on the inside at the exclusion of those who are just sinners. When you take all those presumptions together, I don't know what picture of a person comes to your mind, but let me describe for you what that conjures for me. It conjures for me a picture of profound unhappiness for the person who holds these presumptions. Because this commitment to self-righteousness is a profoundly unhappy and lonely way to live. We're not told, so I'm speculating. We're not told, but I wonder if part of what compelled Nicodemus to seek out this secret meeting with Jesus had something to do with his own unhappiness with his legalism his own unhappiness with his self-righteousness. I love how Jesus responds because they're mad at him for this, but he doesn't respond by trying to tear them apart. Instead, what he does is he tells them stories. What are they stories about? They're stories about two things. They're stories about loss and happiness. That's what the stories are about. He tells them about a shepherd who loses a sheep. 
He tells them about a woman who loses a coin. And then if we were to keep reading in Luke 15, there's a third story. Remember what it is? It's a story of a father who loses one son to reckless living and another son to contempt when that younger son comes home and is shown grace. And in the end, with all three of these stories, all that was lost is found. And there is great joy, except for the son who is living in contempt. And his story is left open. It's left open to wonder about. Jesus Christ, the second person of the blessed Trinity, come in the flesh incarnate, does not need me to tell you that he was a master storyteller. But if you'll indulge me, I'm going to nerd out for a minute on how much of a master storyteller he is with what he does here. Because these three stories escalate. He starts small and then it gets big. You have a shepherd, he loses 1%. And then you have a woman who loses a coin, one of 10. She loses 10%. And then the father loses his boys. These first two stories, you may read these as just appetizers for the main event that's coming, the prodigal son story. But man, they have a function. Let me try to take us into that. These first two stories deal with financial loss. They deal with the practical frustration of keeping track of stuff, right? And you've probably even today experienced the frustration of trying to just keep track of stuff. Where did I put that? Has anybody seen my whatever, right? That we get this. We look at it. But these things, these first two stories, they're objects. The sheep and the coin, they're things that have a definitive value and they can be replaced one for one. You lose a sheep, you can get another sheep, and it's just, you have, you're whole, right? You lose a coin, you can get another coin, you're whole. And so you look at that and you think, okay, there's no stakes to these stories. Oh, is that true? Because what happens when the lost thing is found? When the lost thing is found, the response is anything but practical. The shepherd and the woman both rejoice over finding what was lost. They gather people in to tell them that what was lost is what was that what was lost is found. Why do they do that? Here's the brilliance. You know why. You know why. And the reason you know why is because you're a human being hearing this story and you know what it means to find something that's lost. You know that because you're just like them. As much as these Pharisees try to see themselves as somehow other than the people that they're looking down upon, they are no different. They're no different. And with these stories, Jesus is saying, listen, all of heaven rejoices when what was lost is found, when one sinner repents. Who needs to hear that story? 
I'll tell you who needs to hear that story. Self-righteous people need to hear that story. Self-righteous people need to hear the story that all of heaven rejoices when one sinner repents. Why? Because their system will fail them. Self-righteousness will fail you. And you'll need to know what to do with that. These Pharisees need to know about the joy that God has when sinners repent because the lives that they've built for themselves based on superior conduct and prestige in their communities as the ones who are getting it right will not deliver the peace that they are ultimately looking for. In fact, it will fall apart. It will fall apart. How will it fall apart? It'll fall apart in a million different ways. But let me just name three that I see all the time. Maybe they're hiding a secret sin and it's going to be uncovered and they're going to find themselves ostracized from their own community. Then what? Maybe all that their children ever really receive from them is shame and disapproval and those kids have already begun a slow turning away from them as they grow. And that self-righteous parent has no voice left. Or maybe the person that they're married to lives with a quiet resignation that their spouse is just a hollow shell of a person who is utterly unknowable and completely unavailable. That's how self-righteousness falls apart. To bank on self-righteousness as your avenue to some kind of peace of mind is to have to play this pretty complicated shell game with the truth of your sin, the appearance of your life, and the authority and the respect that you command. And it is a life of constant hardening. You're telling yourself that you are on the right side of things by speaking often and with disapproving conviction about those who are on the wrong side of things. And if you live this way long enough, you will become miserable on the inside and insufferable to everyone around you, except for people who are doing the same thing. Nicodemus. Did he know this? Did he fear this? Is this why he came to Jesus? Did he live this? I want you to imagine, if you're new here, by the way, I ask us to imagine things a lot, to use picture things in your brain, so I'm gonna do it now. I want you to imagine the shepherd and the woman looking for the lost thing. Just picture them. The shepherd's on a... He's cresting a hill and he's catching a view of a valley that he hasn't seen and he's looking for that shape that is a sheep that his eye has been trained to recognize. You can see the woman, she's turning over the cushions in her living room. She's looking high and low. They're alone in their work, right? They're alone in it. And they're responding to a problem, something that's left them at a deficit. And so they look and they try to think, where, where is it? Where could it be? Where did it go? And they're counting the cost of, what if I can't, what if I can't find it? They want it back. Lost things matter, and so they look. 
So it is with God. Lost sinners matter to him. And so he looks for us. He sends his son to find us and to receive us and to welcome us and to heal us and to comfort us and to dine with us. And when just one lost soul is found, when one sinner repents, all the angels in heaven lose their minds. We talked about this at Christmas. Whenever angels come up in scripture, it's always good to pay attention to their reactions to things. How are they reacting? Because we may not always grasp the significance of things that God is doing, but the angels get it. It's one of the benefits of reading about the angels in scripture, seeing how they respond to the work of God, because we can trust that they see things that we can't see. And what we see here is there is more joy in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 who just don't need to. One repentant sinner causes a party in heaven. What's Jesus doing with these stories? Why is he telling these stories? What is he up to here? Because you better believe he's up to something. That's the power of a story, right? It's a Trojan horse for truth. You can sneak so many things past people's lines of defenses by telling them a story. Because nobody likes to be lectured, but we all love a good story. What's he doing? Well, he's doing a lot of things, really. I mean, he's teaching about the importance of repentance, the wonder of forgiveness. He's correcting the Pharisees' impressions of needy and broken people. He's bringing the kingdom of heaven down to earth by way of this series of parables of loss and joy. But there's something else that he's doing that I want us to notice. And that is this. He is spreading out a safety net for the highly perched. He's spreading out a safety net for the highly perched theology snobs, rule keepers, religious leaders, social climbers, for whom their self-righteousness will fail. And he's telling them that lost sheep wasn't always lost. For the longest time, he was part of a group. No one ever thought of him as lost, but he became lost. A series of events transpired, decisions were made, warnings were ignored, and before he knew it, he was lost in a dangerous world and the safety of being part of the group was gone, and unless someone came for him, he would perish in the unforgiving wild. We are fools if we think of ourselves as incapable of losing our way. That is precisely how we lose our way. I don't need no map. That's how it happens. We assume it could never happen to us. And Jesus is telling these stories to the Pharisees as a way of saying to this, this may be you one day. In ways you can't see it, this is you right now. You're so lost in your own self-assuredness that you think God's love is based on a merit system that you are succeeding in. That's what you think. 
when in fact those Pharisees are so much more like the sinners they despise than the God that they think they've pleased. And they just can't see it. But one day they will. Because our best attempts at being enough in this world will fail us if we don't cast ourselves on the mercy of God. And that's Jesus' point. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. So let's wrap this up by going back to Nicodemus again. He's at the end of John's gospel. He's there in John 3, and then he's at the end. Where? Well, okay, Jesus has been crucified, and he is now dead. He's a corpse. And there's a very wealthy man named Joseph of Arimathea, who John tells us, quote, was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews. And he asked Pontius Pilate for permission to bury Jesus' body in his tomb. And he had help. Nicodemus. Nicodemus. These two men wrapped Jesus' body, his dead body, in a mix of linen and spices and oils that weighed 75 pounds. Nicodemus who had struggled to understand Jesus' teaching on being born again, stepped into the reality of Jesus having died. And when he did, he did so publicly. He outed himself. You may be struggling to follow Jesus because you have found his followers to be cartoonishly arrogant and pious and concerned only for self. And if you're only paying a little bit of attention to this world right now, you would have reason for thinking that. But no one has a simple story. Nicodemus was among the Pharisees. We don't know if he was present to hear Jesus teach about the lost coin or the lost sheep or the lost son, but we know that he heard Jesus teach. We know that he saw him work, and he found Jesus to be undeniable. So who are you in this story? Are you the angry Pharisee? Are you the curious one? Are you the believing, recovering Pharisee? Are you the woman who lost her coin? Are you the father who's grieving? for his wayward son? Are you the father who is contending for his angry self-righteous son or daughter to refuse to nurture a heart of stone? What Jesus teaches, these rigid, self-assured men of power and influence, is that sometimes we lose things. Sometimes we lose our way. Sometimes we are helplessly lost. And it can happen to the rich, and it can happen to the poor. But man, there is joy to be had when that lost thing is found. 
And when it's a sinner, all heaven rejoices. I hope you know that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for including in your word to us the story of Nicodemus, this riddle of a person in some ways, this Pharisee who is the, uh, the outlier to what we typically see about Pharisees, this reminder to us that nobody has a simple story and that we can't just conveniently lump everybody together into tidy groups. Thank you that his story has an arc because our stories have arcs, all of them. And uh, Father, everybody in this room, everybody who hears my voice has some measure of self-righteousness, myself included, that we carry with us, things that we, look at, that we use to look at ourselves and determine where we fall in the order of things. Uh, and... Uh, we ask, Father, that you would deliver us from that, but that the way you deliver us from that would be by way of assuring us and reassuring us of the depth and the certainty of your love, that we would rest in that. And we give you thanks for it. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.